This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. I know it's been a while since I've released a podcast episode, and I've had one brewing in my head for the past three weeks, and I had some brewing in my head before that one, and I've taken some notes, and I've gotten them down. I just haven't had a chance to sit down, record them, and then send them off to get them produced and published to my office manager. But I had some time this evening, had kind of a late night working, just have a lot of energy. I know I'm not going to go to sleep anytime soon, so I thought, hey, I'm going to take this opportunity to record a podcast. And then I'm hopeful that over the Thanksgiving break, I can get to some other ones that I've had brewing in my brain and get them down into a podcast episode to release as well. It has been a busier fall than I had expected. And that's okay. There were some good things that were going on. There were some things that I was a part of and experiences that I had that I wouldn't give away or take back. But it has also compromised some areas in other places of my life, this being one of those where I didn't have quite as much to give because of things that I was giving elsewhere. So I wanted to talk about this recent experience that I had about three weeks ago, the end of October. And I wanted to talk about it, put it down in a podcast episode, because I just think it's a powerful experience. This is the third time that I've engaged in this experience. Twice I've done it as a participant. And then this third time I was fortunate to be invited back and to be a facilitator. And so that was also a great opportunity for me. It was a growth experience for me and one that I treasure and will look back on fondly and hopefully can have some opportunities going forward to facilitate again and to do more of these. I would like to do more. So this experience that I went on, it's called GLI is what it's referred to. And I think I did my first GLI in 2015, May of 2015. And then I did my second one, I believe in 2017. I don't remember the month. I'd have to look and see if I wrote down a date. And then this one was, you know, the end of October of 2021. Now GLI stands for Group Leadership Intensive. And the guy who designed and created this has created many other things. His name is Rod Napier. And let me just tell you a little bit about Rod because he has an impressive background. He's brilliant when he's in his element and he's doing his work. It's a learning experience. It's inspirational. I don't get a lot of opportunities to kind of be with men maybe, or just people, I would say, not necessarily men, but people of his stature and to be kind of up close. I mean, I've heard a lot of amazing people speak and powerful people speak, but to kind of be sitting next to him and engaging and talking about where are we going next and that type of stuff, you know, to be in a group of 12 people, that's kind of an amazing experience that I don't have very often. So let me tell you a little bit about Rod. He wrote the book on management best practices. He has about a dozen books and 40 years of experience are all about 
the application of skills and strategies for leaders and managers. Now, I think if I remember correctly, he told me this past two weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, he told me, I think he has actually a PhD in clinical psychology. But he said that pretty quickly after graduation, he realized that he was not cut out to be a therapist and got a teaching position at Temple University. I think he was at Temple for about 12 years. Now, then he was also invited, this would have been in the early 60s, I think 1962, he was invited to be part of the National Training Laboratories. When he was telling me about that, I had never heard of this. Um, I guess it is still in operation today, although he said he thinks it operates differently than when he was there. And so if you look up the National Training Laboratories, it's actually the Institute for Applied Behavioral Science. And the National Training Lab began publishing the Journal of Applied Behavioral Science in 1965. And it remains a renowned publication that contributes a body of knowledge to the field that increases understanding of change processes and outcomes. So this is kind of a, I mean, I know about this journal. I didn't realize that, you know, he was working in the National Training Lab at the time that this journal started to be published. But I knew that that was the work that he was doing. He was saying when I was there that, and I may have some of this wrong, you know, his memory is compromised. He's, you know, older and, and you can just see the effect of aging. It was definitely there this past week or not. It wasn't this past week. I'm going to talk about it like it was last week. It kind of feels like last week. It was three weeks ago. But he talked about how really up until, you know, the early 60s, there really wasn't a lot being written about groups and group processes and group dynamics and effective group strategies, all that type of stuff. He's like, that really just wasn't being talked about or written about or looked at. And that was something he was able to do in his time at Temple, in the National Training Labs. Um, he was a co-founder of the University of Pennsylvania's graduate program in organizational consulting and executive coaching. His ability to tell it like it is has positioned him as a sought-after leadership consultant to top-tier executives who desire hard truths that are necessary to improve their organizations and themselves. Rod very much believes that if you're going to be an effective leader, that's an inside job. And you've got to be looking at your own self and your own work in order to be an effective leader. He's a former college football player, hockey player, and a former Marine. He earned his PhD from the University of Wisconsin at Madison after several years of working in Ghana. His LinkedIn profile says his atypical life journey fostered fresh insights into organizational development and system change. Rod was asked to help construct the first cabinet in post-Sandinista Nicaragua for the budding democracy. Later, he was asked to bring black and white South African ministers together to help build their leadership skills. And a few years later, many of them would become the backbone of the Mandela Revolution. Currently, or his most current work, has been to look at the dark side of leadership. And he wrote about this in his 13th book, The Seduction of the Leader, which provides striking insights about and remedies for the dangers that face organizations whose leaders are seduced by sycophantic praise, half-truths, and filtered reporting. And then he founded the Napier Group. That helps executives in universities, industries, organizations, corporations, 
to identify where their blind spots are and what keeps them from surging and making the impact that they can make. So he's the one who created GLI, Group Leadership Intensive is what it stands for. And it is intensive over the, you know, six days that we're there. And as I've talked to him, you know, he talked about, he's, like I said, he's aging, he's 85. You know, he's survived prostate cancer, broke his back during COVID, really, you know, talked about how hard it was as a single older person during the pandemic to be isolated and somewhat alone and the impact that that had also on aging. And he talked about, you know, some of his legacy work that one of the things out of all of the things that he has done in his illustrious career, one of the things he would like to see is for this group leadership intensive to continue on and to pass that down. Now, I came in contact, I've talked before on this podcast about my experience doing the 12 principles with Dr. Patrick Carnes. I started that in 2012 and I did it for three years. And that's how I met the other facilitator, Leonard Bade. I let, met Leonard at 12 principles and we kind of started talking maybe the last two principles and he invited me, he was planning a GLI with Rod and invited me to attend that. And so I did. Now Leonard, has a master's degree in organizational development and he is an experienced operational strategist who specializes in executive development, coaching, organizational effectiveness, and design. Now Leonard also has a background. He's worked a lot in residential treatment centers, helping them, consulting with them to build a program that's highly effective and to have a staff that's also operating at a highly effective level. He talks about how cultural transformations emphasize building high performance teams, leadership and supervision capabilities, and performance management systems that will overall increase the organizational success and profits. And his efforts have resulted in a number of award-winning best-in-class outcomes in local, state, U.S., and international venues. Like I said, he also has the ability to provide this addiction component to it, Um, And so he's able to work with executives who are also dealing with addiction and the way that that impacts corporations or the company that they're working within and to be able to provide services and support to them as well as the, their work environment, their family environment. So, okay. I think that's, that's what I wanted to tell you about both of them. So that's kind of a overview, maybe a top level uh, view of their experience and what they bring to the table and some of their backgrounds. Now, Leonard met Rod about 30 years ago, I think is what they were telling me. They met about 30 years ago. And I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember because that whole week is kind of um, a blur to me, but I don't really remember if they told me exactly how they met, but they met and they became friends and they've been friends. And, you know, Leonard's participated in several GLIs that Rod has done over the last 60 years. We were figuring, you know, doing a GLI this year. And again, they've slowed down. Rod used to run them quarterly or several times a year. And so we figured that he had been doing this in 2021. He had been doing this about 60 years that he's been running GLIs itself. And Leonard, like I said, had participated in them and felt like they were really impactful and also wanted to make it part of his legacy work that this you know, he's carrying on Rod's legacy and then he wants to carry it. And 
wants to also pass it down to somebody younger than him. And I'm younger than him, right? I'm not young, but I'm younger than him. And so that was kind of how it came about that I would be invited in to help facilitate. Like I said, I started as a participant in 2015. And it was interesting this time being a facilitator. I think I noticed things or learned things that I was kind of like, wow, I should have kind of picked up on that or I kind of should have figured that out as a participant twice. I was a participant twice, but it never dawned on me until I had this opportunity to be a facilitator and have a different viewpoint of it and a different perspective of it. And some things just really got clarified for me about why we're doing what we're doing during that week and how this is all shaped and designed. And it's pretty multi-layered and multifaceted. And, you know, from that facilitator, I'm sure there were things I'm still missing, but it was just an interesting experience for me to have participated twice and then to move into the facilitator and just make the observations that I could from the facilitator standpoint. Now, like I mentioned, I want to circle back. Rod talks about that being an effective leader is an inside job and that if you haven't done your own work, chances are your leadership capability is going to be compromised. Now, maybe for some of you, as you're listening to this podcast, maybe you don't put yourself in a category where you would think of yourself as a leader. And my answer to that would be, you don't really understand democracy and how our country is set up. Because in our country, our government is a democracy and it's a government by the people, for the people. We've heard this mantra before, it kind of hopefully rings a bell. And it's a form of government in which the supreme power is vested in the people and it's exercised directly by us or by our elected agents under a free electoral system, right? Now, we can say all we want about where that is right now and how you feel about that. I understand that. I'm just talking about what the definition and the ideology of democracy is. And so if we live in a democracy, which... You know, many of my listeners are in the United States. I currently reside in the United States. I know we're not the only democratic government established. Maybe not even the best democratic government that's been established. But if we have this form of government, one of the ways that democracy is characterized is by formal equality of rights and privileges. Now, again, I know, I know we haven't been great at that. I'm a woman. I understand that that wasn't always thought of in terms of my gender or other people's races or sexual orientation or et cetera, et cetera. But if we are going to have a democracy, again, we're talking about the definition, not the rolling out or the way it's implemented. If we're going to have a democracy and we believe in democracy, then if we believe in this formal equality of rights and privileges, then we should be able to be leaders as we are endowed with these rights from this structure of government, right? In a democracy, we all have this responsibility and maybe a privilege to be leaders in our way, in our own way, in our community, in our family, in our neighborhood, in our churches, in our communities. We have an opportunity to be leaders. And maybe it's not what you think of in your elected officials. But sometimes those who are the leaders maybe haven't quite done their inside work. And those people who aren't really 
or maybe don't consider themselves to be leaders, sometimes when they speak, they say things that stop the conversation, that rewind and make everybody rethink things and listen and follow. So again, I think we need to be generous with our definition of leader and not necessarily exclusive, but rather being inclusive with this idea of leadership. So Rob does, you know, talk about a couple of things in terms of group dynamics that is helpful to understand, right? And it's helpful for us to understand that week of GLI, but it's helpful, I think, for all of us to understand. So I wanted to talk about, you know, in the, just what are the group dynamics? You know, so he talks about initially group dynamics start with a leader. Usually it's an established leader or an elected leader or somebody who opts for leadership. And these leaders have an agenda that sounds reasonable enough to follow, but it may not be effective. Not all leaders have a message that's effective when they actually try to put it in practice. Another area of group dynamic is to have goals, right? This is where we start to understand team dynamics and how we're working. And we may be able to identify both verbal and nonverbal agendas. You also have in group dynamic, you have membership, right? Membership is about how much do you identify with your level of membership in this group, whatever that group is, what's your buy-in, right? That's part of your membership. How much do you identify with this group? And one thing he cautions, right, is he says, if a person doesn't feel membership, you need to watch out because a group is only as strong as its weakest member or the one who doesn't buy in the most. Then he also talks about norms. Norms are the unstated rules that govern the life of the group. They guide the life of the group. Positive you know, group norms can guide the life of the group. Negative group norms will bring it to a grounding halt. And so the rule when it comes to norms it is that you have to identify it. And you have to start speaking what is unspoken because again, norms are not spoken. And then in group dynamics, how do we make decisions? Well, the decisions need to be made based on the health of the group. So, you know, sometimes in our life growing up, maybe we were put in a place where we were kind of surviving. Maybe we realized that, maybe we didn't realize that. But if we're surviving, the question becomes, what is good for me? What is safe for me? What is best for me? What is good for me? And it's a valid question to ask when there hasn't been safety, there hasn't been security, and your wants and needs weren't necessarily met the way you needed them to be. However, in group dynamics, we can't be looking at this from a survival perspective. We have to be asking ourselves, what is good for everybody? Not just the majority, not just the most, but we're asking what is good for everybody in order to make decisions, in order to make progress, in, an, in order to move, everybody has to have some type of consensus. Now we can force consensus. However, forced consensus is going to lead to some negative norms in the group that at some point are gonna bring you to that grinding halt and we'll just ground the whole group. Or we can have willing consensus where everybody has a voice, everybody is heard out, and we move together with consensus, not forced consensus. Now, some of the things that happen, you know, in those group dynamics and as a participant in two GLIs, 
I witnessed these. And then as a facilitator, this past go around, I also witnessed some of these. Things like ignoring tension or just ignoring conflict, accommodating or playing nice. It's one of the things I was saying to this group at the beginning, like, you guys are really nice. You're really nice with each other. And eventually I had to say, I don't, I'm not saying that as a compliment, right? Like, I don't know that being nice actually gets things done. You know, there can be a group norm that we don't speak the unspoken and we just kind of go along with the flow. Although that usually works until it doesn't. We can dance around discomfort. That will keep us from actually making a decision. We can be risk averse you know, being afraid of looking bad. And so we won't take the risks that actually move us forward. The other thing, you know, that I really learned my first time at GLI, which I had heard before, I had heard this, and I think I even agreed with it. I just hadn't really ever had the opportunity to experience it in the way that I did at GLI. And that is this idea that there's no such thing as negative feedback. There's only feedback. And we can either take it or we can leave it. I think feedback done well provides insight that we don't have otherwise. Done poorly, it's hurtful and that's not very effective. But when we're giving feedback, we need to be specific. We need to be descriptive. We need to be able to describe exactly what we're talking about in the feedback. When I saw you do this or when I saw you say this, when I heard you say this, this is what I noticed, this is what I thought, this is what I observed, this is what I felt. And that can be either negative or positive. And it's a way to give the person information that is helpful to them in becoming more effective. Now, one thing also to think about when we're thinking about membership is with membership, one of the things we need to be aware of as a leader is if a person has high energy and they're putting out ideas but the group doesn't necessarily buy in or they don't necessarily hear what the person is saying. Well, you don't want to lose that person, right? Which that runs the risk if they're putting out some ideas or they're speaking some things and maybe they're speaking some things and it has an edge to it and others just don't quite know what to make of that. But you don't want to lose that person. That's a valuable person, right? Because sometimes they're willing to speak what actually isn't spoken. But you need to know, will they come back and will they re-engage once they weren't heard. And during GLI, we get the opportunity. There were several people at every GLI, I can think of where I was a participant and the facilitator, where they were throwing out ideas, they were giving the group some data, but the group didn't quite pick it up or didn't pick it up immediately. And you know, they had decisions to make. How do I interact with the group? Do I come back with the group? Do I shrink away and kind of hide for the rest of the week? Robert Bly said, this was kind of at the end of one of his quotes. The rest of his quote didn't necessarily, I feel like applied to me as a woman, but I really did like this part of his quote. And I thought about this and reflected on this. He says, where a man is wounded, or we could say where a person or a woman, where a person is wounded, that is where their genius will be. And I think, you know, as I've participated in GLI now three times from a different lens, one, one of those times, I think I find this over and over again for both myself as a participant. And even I experienced this, I felt like as a facilitator, maybe because I was a new facilitator, but watching the participants 
and seeing that happen for them, initially seeing kind of that issue come to a surface where we could kind of feel the wound as a group or as a facilitator, you know, you could kind of see when it showed up, but also to get them to start to see, actually, that's where the genius is. That's not, that's not actually the weakness. It's actually the genius because if you can embrace that and you can embrace the energy of that wound, you can transform it and it becomes your genius, right? Or it becomes your brilliance or it becomes your strength. So one of the things that it's good for you to know, I don't want to give away all the spoiler alerts for any of you who might think about attending a GLI at some point down the road. One of the things that is helpful to know about GLI is first of all, we don't use our names and we don't talk about where we're from and we don't talk about what we do for work. Everybody there has a job, but we don't talk about it. We don't talk about what field we do. We don't talk about what position we hold and we don't have a name. We pick a name prior to arriving at GLI facilitators as well. We pick a name that is representative of maybe an issue we're working on. Sometimes it can be the name of a person that you're gaining inspiration from, or maybe a person that you're working on a relationship with. I've heard it be a child or a parent's name that you just kind of want some inspiration about that that week. And so that's the name that you take. And so, you know, that first night we kind of gather, it's a Sunday Everybody kind of gets their different arrival times, but, you know, we kind of get together, we go to dinner, come back, and, you know, this is basically where GLI starts, and we sit in a room, in a circle, and, you know, the first thing that Rod says is, I want you to look around, take a minute, look around at every single person in this room. We had 12 participants this time. I want you to look at every person in this room, and I want you to look at them in the eye, I want you to notice their face, and he says, because... They are not going to be the same by the end of this week. Now, the first time I heard it, I thought, well, that's a little dramatic. But actually, every time I've I've been part of GLI, I have found that that is true. Like, what happens that week in GLI changes everybody. I don't know how it cannot change us. And so we are not the same people when we leave as we were that first day that we arrived. So we spend some time looking at each other and then we go around and we share what our name is and why that's our chosen name. And then, you know, what we do after that. I mean, usually Rod does open it up and say, if we are going to accomplish what we need to accomplish this week, then you need to be able to ask us as facilitators tough questions, because if we're going to accomplish what we want to this week, it's going to require some trust. And, you know, obviously we're not asking for your trust right here this moment or up front because that's not how trust happens. But we want to start that process of gaining trust rather than waiting too long or missing some time. Let's start by asking the facilitator some questions and we'll break them up into some groups, groups of three. We did this last time, um, four groups of three, and just come up with some of the questions that you want to ask the facilitators, one of the facilitators, all three of them, that you think might help you start this process of gaining some trust so that we can be effective with the work that we're going to be doing this week. So they were able to do that. And then, you know, I think it was the next morning, might have been still that night. Again, you totally lose track of time and day. I'm still kind of trying to reorient into what time and day it is. 
But then we start talking about what hopes we have for this week. We're talking about that right up front, right? What are the hopes? What are you arriving with? What are you hoping to gain? What are your fears? And what are your concerns? And I will say that this gets serious pretty fast. There's some excitement that's shared. There's some vision that's shared. There's some nervousness. And there's some fear. And from this small activity, we get information about what is. We get information about what isn't. And we get information about what might be. Which is gold. We start to really mine that gold because this is valuable information that as facilitators we're getting, but also as group members we're getting. So we want to capture that. We want to write it down. You know, we put it on those big sticky notes and we put it on the walls for us to reflect on throughout the week. And I think, you know, one of the things that I take away from this initial activity every time is what a gift it is to be oneself with others in struggle. I don't know that we often have the opportunity to do that. It's usually not a stated purpose that that's what we're doing, but I really do feel like it's one of the gifts of GLI and it's one of the gifts maybe that we learn for the first time is how to be present with ourselves and another person in the struggle and in the midst of that struggle. You know, I think so often we live our lives in our own bodies without ever giving ourselves the opportunity to actually see ourselves and to know how others experience us. And this is really valuable information. It can be kind of scary to get some of that feedback, but it's also, I think, one of the most powerful things I've ever gotten from people, which was actually helpful information. I knew that they knew that about me. When I was getting feedback as a participant, I knew that what they were saying was accurate. They had seen that this week and the way that they delivered it was helpful and it was moving to me. It moved me in a way that moved me forward and aided in my progression. But I think also having given feedback, it can be difficult to give that feedback because we don't typically live like that. We don't get honest with people about what we've seen, about what we think that means. The other thing that we do at GLI, and I just love it, is you know we talk about how much we walk around daily life with judgments. Judgments about other people, not necessarily bad judgments, but we just walk around with judgments of people. Judgments of people, judgments about things, about places, all of that type of stuff. And much of that is projection. But it's interesting also to stop and recognize how much of that actually is accurate. And so, you know, we have this activity that we do. Again, it's done fairly early on before people really get a chance to know much about each other. And we break them into groups and we have a list of, it's usually about 10 questions. And so let's say it's a group of three. And so you have two people looking at the third person and we're answering these questions about this third person. We're not asking them questions. We're just looking at them and then we're writing down our judgment, our perception, our projection. And everybody gets a turn to be that person where you're having assumptions made about you, having projections made about you. And the questions are things like, did this person grow up in a rural environment, in an urban or a city environment? 
You know, the questions can be, what kind of car does this person drive? What kind of food does this person like? Where are they in the birth order in their family? Or are they an only child who was a dominant parent, mom or dad? What type of leadership style do they have? What does their workspace look like? You know, organized, organized with messy drawers, messy, that type of stuff, right? So there's, you know, 10 different questions that are like, you know, one of the questions I'm just remembering, what does this person like to do on the weekend? Things that, you know, I mean, the first time I was doing this, I'm looking at this person, I'm like, how in the world am I going to know this, right? And then I'm like, I'm getting Toyota Prius. I'm writing Toyota Prius. I think they're a Prius person, right? And wouldn't you know it, you know, he, we're like, okay, what kind of car? The, the other guy asked me, what kind of car do you think he drives? And I said, I put down a Toyota Prius. And the look on his face, he was like, how do you know that? And I was just like, wait, I know that? Like you drive a Toyota Prius? It was just amazing, right? Now my second time, they kind of pegged me, the, the one guy pegged me wrong out of the gate, right? He, and he took me for a country person, right? And so that theme kind of followed through every projection and I don't have anything against, you know, country music or country line dancing, but that's not what I do on the weekend and that's not typical of the music I listen to or anything like that. So, you know, that one, I mean, again, if you get it wrong, if he got it wrong off the start, he got like all 10 of the questions wrong about me. But actually at the end of this, you know, activity, exercise, design, we kind of take a poll and we see, you know, okay, so how many questions did the two, uh, p- two people get right about you? And surprisingly, most of the time, I think in this group, if I'm remembering correctly, I think there was one that was like seven. So 70%, right? They got seven out of 10 right. The majority of them were eight, nines, or even tens where people nailed it all the way. So again, what do we do with that, right? Because we walk around in our life, we make assumptions, we make projections, we make judgments, but what do we do with that? Where does that go, right? I don't know that it has a healthy place or a productive place to go, but we have it. We don't not do it. This just kind of formalized that process and said, hey, are you aware of what you're bringing to the table and that you're making assumptions? No? Well, let's just go ahead and make these assumptions and see how that works out. And again, I just think, you know, what what would be the result? Every time I lead GLI, I think what would be the result if we did this as a matter of routine as human beings? One of the questions they asked me when they were asking facilitators is like, what, what made you come back? You've participated twice. Now you're back as a facilitator. Why? And the answer, honestly, is I think something happens at GLI that I'm not saying that it doesn't happen elsewhere or in the way that Rod has designed it. I'm just saying I don't know of that and I haven't seen it. And what Rod has designed as part of GLI is powerful. It's life-changing. Last week, you know, I was invited to be on a Zoom call where about half the participants of this previous GLI jumped on Zoom, we're talking about how are they implementing their learnings, what they got out of GLI. It was just awesome to mostly just listen to them, listen to their experiences. I think I heard you know, from two or three of them how life-changing the experience was, which I was glad to hear because it, it was for me as well. And I, 
I think that's part of my hope. My hope for the world is that we start to have these type of experiences or we take the work that Rod has created and we start to move that forward in the world in a way where it does become a matter of routine. And we do increase our emotional intelligence. And we do start to understand a deeper perspective about ourselves and about feedback and about what to do with feedback and how to give helpful feedback, not painful feedback. So some of the feedback that I got is that when I know how to channel what I'm saying, I say it in a powerful way, but I need to practice it because I stop myself. Somebody else wrote that. I hold back and people don't know exactly what to make of that. It's basically that I am the one that interrupts myself and stops talking. And you know, when I started getting that feedback, it wasn't the first time I had heard something along those lines, but it was the first time I had heard it in an environment and in a way that it just spoke such truth. It's not like that I denied it. I didn't deny it. But I think for the first time, I hoped that I could do something with it and that maybe that week I could work with that in a way that was helpful for me or that started to move me through that area of development or that kind of that weakness that I had where I was getting in my own way um, because I didn't know, you know, I, or I would feel like one of the people said, you know, like when she talks, it's powerful. But I think when she feels the power of it, it triggers something inside of her. And so she just stops. Well, I hadn't been told that specific thing before. But when they told me that, I definitely resonated with that. Um, in fact, somebody, I underlined this too. So the first time that I went, my name was Ocean. That's what I was called for a week. And I talked about, I picked the word ocean. I don't live by an ocean. I wish I lived by the ocean. But I just said, you know, I, I feel these two sides of me and I'm trying to figure out how to, uh, how to navigate them. Like I feel a calmness that is present, right? And powerful, like the ocean can be very calm very powerful still, even though it's calm. But the ocean can also be tumultuous. It can rage, right? It can, I mean, I, I'm not necessarily a rager. I can feel that inside. And so I just said, you know, that's kind of what I, where I'm navigating and what I'm trying to work on is how to hold both of those truths in a way that moves me forward instead of keeping me stuck. So I, I think I'd probably shared something along those lines to that effect. And uh, one of the days, it was Monday morning, right? So that's day two of GLI. One of the people, her given name that week was Blue. And she made a comment and she said, Ocean wants to be a rock. I don't remember what was exactly going on. Well, here's what I, here's what I wrote about it. I said, I learned today that I am way more intuitive than I give myself credit for. I put up blocks or walls that when I let them down, my intuition appears. I've also learned from this one exercise that when I'm caught off guard or stunned or find myself in chaos, I withdraw, I retreat, I take a step back, I go off the radar and I try to figure out what's happening big picture wise and when, if, how I can re-engage. So I said there was an interesting comment 
from Blue about this. She said, ocean wants to be a rock. And I had mentioned several times today about being solid. And she said, the ocean isn't solid. It's a force to be reckoned with, but it isn't solid. And it made me reflect and think, I don't want to be solid like a rock. I want fluidity. I want adaptability. And I just wrote, that's a really good reminder for me that I don't, I'm not looking for solidness because that would probably look like rigidness for me. And I don't want to be so solid that change can't take place or that I become unadaptable. So that was one of my learnings. And that was kind of early on, right? As the week progressed, you get additional feedback and more feedback to to move with and to grow with. The second time, you know, again, it, it showed up a little bit the same way, not quite the same way. I could see my progress. The second time, you know, I knew this, this had shown up for me where I would get kind of shaky. And even in my voice kind of wasn't necessarily a stutter, but it was, it was something I would call it a stutter. I don't, I don't know all the options in the speech pathology world to call it something else. But I noticed probably in 2016 or early 2017 that I would have maybe a stutter or something. I, I hadn't had that show up in my language before. And I ha- maybe had some theories as to why it appeared when it did. And I had talked about this at the second GLI and you know they acknowledged that they noticed it. They noticed shakiness in my voice, which I don't think that had been there before and I hadn't really ever gotten feedback about that before. And they noticed this tendency that I have, still kind of have it to go last. And usually I'm okay. Like a lot of times if you're, if you're going last to share an idea or share something about yourself, a lot of times you run out of time. And honestly, I, I was okay with that. It's not like I was saving the best for last or anything like that. You know, but some of the feedback I got was like, you dismiss yourself by going last. Says somebody else said, I have a tendency to be the last to go. I want to see the field first. And I push the conversation off myself in a subtle way. And that that was a way that I sabotage myself and get in my own way. So again, maybe it had evolved. It had made some progress, but not quite where I needed it to be. Still kind of getting in my way or, you know, I would speak up, but just kind of waiting too long maybe to speak up. And so, I mean, as a facilitator, we don't necessarily get feedback. I definitely did get feedback as a facilitator, which I totally appreciate because I think I've come to learn really the value of feedback and how precious that is for somebody to get that honest and courageous to say what they're noticing in an honest way that's not, they're not beating around the bush, right? And they're just kind of, telling us, this is what I'm noticing about you. This is what I think about it. This is the story that I'm telling myself about where that comes from. And that that's, you know, really an amazing gift that we get from people. The last thing I wanted to talk about, you know, because I think, again, this isn't necessarily new to me, but GLI often brings it to the forefront for me. I often will talk about with my clients in therapy, I'll talk about like, what's the unfinished business, you know, as a way to kind of like bring into consciousness or bring into awareness, maybe the things that we haven't quite got to yet, or maybe that, you know, maybe they're intentionally avoiding, but just asking like, where's the unfinished business? 
I think, you know, for most of us, we arrive in adulthood with unfinished business. And I'm open to the idea that some of us don't, that we have good enough childhoods and we don't really arrive at adulthood with issues. I'm sure those people are out there. It's not me. It's not anybody who I hang out with. I don't know those people, but I'm not saying they don't exist. So unfinished business, right, is the nonverbal representation of the group at GLI. Like we're often asking the group, what's the unfinished business? Where do we need to go next? And why do we need to go there, right? We're trying to bit by bit bring the unfinished business into consciousness and to have it be spoken. You know, with clients, I'm asking it in a terms of like, what haven't we dealt with or what haven't we focused on or spoken that we need to face right now? Because unfinished business has a way of just recreating itself and showing up again and showing up again as an invitation to finish that. Not that it doesn't get triggered or show up again, but we have to finish it, right? We have to finish these puzzles that got started in childhood. I'm not talking about literal puzzles, right? But these puzzles that we couldn't quite figure out because of our own environment, we got to finish those puzzles or we're just going to keep getting more and more complex puzzles that confuse us, that we get lost in. I think that often the unfinished business is most likely to show up in conflict. And, you know, one of the things I wondered about as a participant, because both times that I was a participant, conflict arose throughout the week. Well, it it rose during the week and we had to address it, face it, work through it in order to accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. So one of the takeaways that I had as a participant is, is that normal? Like, does conflict always arise at GLI? And I think I asked both Rod and Leonard this question, but I don't know. I thought about this since I got back. I don't know that I got an answer. So my guess, my guess answer would be yes. I don't know that you can bring 10 or 12 people together and stay mostly in a room, right? I mean, we all had our own bedrooms, but we're, we're mostly working in a room, also experiencing some sleep deprivation. I don't know that you can do that and not have conflict arise, right? The other thing that I noticed as a facilitator was, you know, there's a design that we do that kind of gets us looking at what are the 10 characteristics in order of importance of a highly effective team. And, you know, then the the 12 participants or however many participants have to sort that out amongst themselves and figure that out. And I've done that twice as a participant. What I didn't realize until I was a facilitator is actually that question doesn't end after that design ends. Like that is the question for the week. We're trying to figure out how to be a highly effective team in that six-day process. And some of that is done as a group and some of that is done as an individual, but it always contributes back to the group in making it a highly effective team. So like I was saying, I, I think maybe we've always lived, but currently we definitely live, if you're in the United States, we live in a conflict averse country. And during this week of GLI, conflict arises, right? 
Now, some people definitely get sucked into that conflict and some people kind of stay on the edges of that conflict. What I found with GLI is if we stay on the edges of conflict, eventually it just comes forward. And that's not a bad thing because if we're going to be effective and if we're going to be effective leaders, we have to be able to handle conflict. We cannot be conflict averse. And so I think, again, going back to the unfinished business, often we have unfinished business in our personal stories. We have unfinished business in our family of origin. We may have unfinished business in our communities. We have unfinished business as a country. Probably most countries have unfinished business. And you can't outlive that. You can't just keep going forward as a way to finish the past. You have to look at the past. You have to examine the past. You have to have a way to work through it so that the past doesn't keep gaining this power over you. And I think, you know, right now, for me, one of the powerful things since I first attended GLI is it feels like there's an opportunity to learn something. And to have an experience that is changing, it's life-changing, individual changing, whatever that is, it's impactful and it's moving. And if we can have those types of experiences and then take that back with us, back to our communities, back to our workplace, back to our families, back to our marriages or our relationships, then we can start finishing the unfinished, and we can start moving through the conflict in a way that is productive, that actually addresses that unfinished business in a way that resolves it so that we can move forward and have higher levels of trust, higher levels of inclusivity, and more effective ways of being together as groups of people or teams of people. Now, I know I'm, I'm just talking a lot about GLI without maybe talking about the specifics. And so I hope that's beneficial for you as the listener who has never heard of GLI, doesn't really know this process that I'm talking about. I'm still hoping that you glean some things. And I just want to say, I'm really talking, you know, what I've talked about thus far, almost for an hour, is really kind of covering the first two and a half days of GLI. And this is a six-day process, right? So we've still got a lot more to do. And I think another takeaway from GLI is really we are there to affect change. We're there to affect change that day or that hour or that design or that week. But like I said, we're also there to take that back with us and hopefully start a process of change where we all came from. I think one of the things that I've noticed as a participant twice and a facilitator in GLI is experiences like that. You can't walk away from that experience without doing something with it. That's one of the reasons I think I wanted to talk about this episode. I think one of the things I want to do with my experience is talk about it. You know, the first time I went, I talked about it with my staff. I talked about it with some friends. Some of them still say to me, I remember you came back and you were different. Something about you was different. And I wanted to share that with them. You know, we get to hear ourselves during that week. We get to hear ourselves 
talk about our experience. We also get to hear other people hear us talk about our experience. And what's helpful about that is in any helping relationship, we need witnesses. We need a witness to see what's happening there in real time for us, who can support us and who can support our understanding. When, when people are in a transition, which happens at GLI, but it happens outside of GLI as well. It happens for people in therapy. It happens. It happens. When people are in transition, it's so helpful to be able to talk about the situation, to talk about their hope, to talk about the dreams. But we also have to take it a step further in order to really solidify this in a way to take it out and start to do something with it. And that is, I think, we have to not just get to know somebody, which happens at GLI, or sometimes that happens in therapy or men's groups. We really get to know somebody. But I'm not talking about just the story. When somebody's going through transition, they're going through a change process. What's helpful about the witness is they're feeling it with them. There's a process that they're understanding as they're witnessing this transformation or this transition for that person. And as they're able to witness that and support them and understand this process that they're in, and especially at GLI because they're in their own process that's similar to that, in some ways we can start to step into a space that many of us didn't have, right? Most of us had parents that had issues, right? Maybe they were fine people, but they had their issues. Their parents had their issues and they couldn't do exactly what we needed them to do. And those are some issues we have to address in order to be effective leaders and in order to affect change in ourselves and to be able to support a change process or a transition for another person. Michael Mead talks about, he has a quote that says, when you step further into the story, you came to live. Not only does the mythic territory open, but the deep self moves and the world of imagination and meaning comes towards you. Now I've read that quote before. I've thought about it. I thought about like, I, I even love just that line. When you step further into the story, you came to live dot, dot, dot. What happens then when you step further into that story, then what, right? We start to feel a sense of self. But I like the whole quote as well when he says, not only does the mythic territory open, those maybe those myths we had about ourselves or our story or the world, it starts to open and the deep self moves and the world of imagination and meaning comes towards you. I think we need to have those experiences. Our world, our communities, our families need us to have those experiences in a way that imagination, vision, hope, and meaning comes towards us and we don't shrink back from it. And maybe there's somebody there with that imagination, with that vision, with that hope, with some feedback for us. Maybe it's the things most people are afraid to tell us, but that this person knows we need to hear it in order to move forward and in order to move towards what is coming at us. 
I hope we have those experiences. I know as we head into the holiday season, this time of year, you know, at least for clients in my field, for therapists in my field, this can be a really difficult time, right? Because we're involved with families, we're involved, we go back sometimes, maybe we aren't as spending much time with our family system, but we're going back to a family system that operates as a system and it operates on rituals and rules and routines. And sometimes we hope that maybe this year, this Thanksgiving or this Christmas or this Hanukkah, that the system will change. And then we leave and think, no, the system is the system. And when I engage with that system, it's the same system. And I have to be part of the change. I have to do something different. It may or may not ever change the system, but it can allow me to create new systems going forward that tap into my unfinished business and that tap into my hopes, my concerns, and my fears in a way that I can actually do something with them and move towards them in a way that I have some resolution, I have some awakening, I have some awareness, and I can close those doors. Maybe not permanently, but they're not a gaping, wide open wound anymore. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until you're finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.